welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and this week our guest is Dr. Sam Cherub, senior political scientist at the RAND Corporation and one of the top American experts on Russia and Ukraine. Before joining RAND in 2017, he was senior fellow for Russia and Eurasia at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. That's where Sam and I first met. And prior to that, he served as senior advisor to the Undersecretary of State for Arms Control and International Security and on the Secretary of State's policy planning staff covering Russia and Eurasia. Sam is fluent in Russian and proficient in Ukrainian and has been a visiting researcher in both Moscow and Kiev. He holds a PhD in political science and an MPhil in Russian and East European studies from the University of Oxford, where he was a Marshall Scholar. His book, Everyone Loses, The Ukraine Crisis and the Ruinous Contest for Post-Soviet Eurasia, which he co-authored with Timothy Colton, was published in January 2017 and could not be more relevant today. My conversation with Sam Cherup of the Rand Corporation about the Russian invasion of Ukraine and what it means for the Middle East begins now. Sam, welcome to On the Middle East. Pleased to have you join our podcast today to talk about Russia and Ukraine. Thanks for having me. Okay, let's get into it. Bring us up to date in your assessment what is Putin's endgame now in Ukraine, where it seems the military advance, at least on Kiev, has not gone as he had hoped, as we read about Ukrainian resistance, high casualties, and supply and logistics bottlenecks for the Russian military? Is his plan still to depose the present government? And how do you assess his military operations elsewhere in the country, not just around Kiev, because uh, Russia has taken Kherson, a city of 300,000 in the south, and seems to be making advances along the Black Sea. So um, big, big, big question. Let's let's try to break it down a little bit. Um, I think uh, we have seen no sign that Putin is deviating from his, um, I'm not going to call it an endgame, and I'll get to that in a second, tactical objective of decapitating the Ukrainian government and replacing it. Um, and the, uh, the reason I don't call it an end game is because I don't know how that actually results in a new, uh, stable equilibrium, a new political order in Ukraine. Uh, it's, um, the kind of, you know, uh, as we've learned from bitter experience, uh, replacing, you know, ousting regimes does not lead to creation of new political orders. And uh, we've seen no sign that there is a political game plan to accompany um, the military one. Um, on the military side of things, in terms of what, what we can see about what's going on, it seems pretty clear that there's an attempt to uh, encircle um, what I would imagine to be, although you know the Ukrainians have been much better about um, covering their tracks on social media than the Russians have, um, that the bulk of the Ukrainian 
forces still remain on the line of contact in the Donbass, and uh, they've been pinned down there since this began um, from the separatist held areas. Um, but what you see with Kherson and uh, Kharkiv is that those are the two points after which they're going to be, you know, cut off. And, you know, we should note in this context that there actually haven't been like force on force. Um, uh, there haven't been a lot of force on force uh, battles yet um, of any significance. Uh, and uh, I mean, I think those would be to come if that move happens. Um, because, you know, the, the Ukrainians, of course, have been fighting a war of attrition in the Donbass and had most of their capabilities um, on the line of contact. Uh, and so this is one of the concerns I've had from the beginning that, you know, that that presents an opportunity for Russia to do the Russian military to do what it likes to do, which is encircle adversary forces and then, you know, either force them to capitulate or pound them into smithereens. Um, the, the there seems to be a move to encircle the capital. Um, as well in parallel uh and so i think these are separate military moves um and uh all aimed at the same purpose um you know in and not only decapitating the regime but also destroying ukraine's military and its capabilities um as horrible as that sounds um so the if, if you want to get into a little bit about the performance question um should we go there in terms of definitely yeah so uh it seems to me that this was a um uh the the interesting part is that like uh the russian military built up for this operation like they would for like they train for in terms of the capabilities that were brought forward um they have not executed the kind of fight that they train for that that exists in their doctrine um this was uh the based i think the initial operations were based on an assumption that it wouldn't that the ukrainian government would fold like a house of cards and so all it would take would be some sort of you know shock and awe and a couple of like daring parachute para, uh, like airborne troop landings and that would be it they would flee or something and and the the military would capitulate um and that was a real miscalculation um and uh you know led to these like airborne units being caught um uh, deep behind enemy lines without any logistical tail or or support um the the it, it led to a you know, not prioritizing the seed mission of suppressing enemy air defense. So, you know, the Ukrainian air defenses are still, some of them are still operating, which is shocking to me. And the Russian Air Force really has not been seen much. Um, so I think the idea initially was to just, you know, that, that the Russian assumptions, and they always have a dim view of Ukraine and Ukrainian elites particularly, that the whole thing was a house of cards. It would just take a little push to collapse. Um, and that was a miscalculation. And now what we're seeing is plan B, which is, you know, uh, encircle the Ukrainian military, um, uh, besiege cities, uh, shell them if they don't capitulate. Um, and uh, I think, unfortunately, um, it's just a matter of time. Sam, what did Putin and the Russian military learn or perhaps mislearn 
from their experiences in Syria. That's been a roughly 10-year engagement, which intensified in 2015 and was widely considered by Russians, as I understand it, a success. How influential was that experience in Syria for this war planning here in Ukraine? I, you know, even just operationally, my assumptions going in were that the, you know, the Russian aerospace forces, which have had extensive experience now, thanks to the operation in Syria, would have been, you know, at the tip of the spear in this context. But they have not been, you know, engaged in the kind of bombing campaigns that they were in Syria. Um, Russia never had to worry about contested airspace or air defenses really in Syria. Uh, so it just makes it's a different environment. Um, and, you know, they, they were, they're doing precise from their perspective, precisely the opposite of what they did in Syria. In Syria, from their perspective, they were restoring the statehood of the country. That was the term used. Um, and they relied on extensive local ground forces to support their operations, which were largely air-based. I mean, I don't really see any, frankly, um, ways in which they've leveraged that so far. Um, the Air Force may well get involved, and the pilots that will be flying those planes will likely have you know, flown sorties in Syria. So I think that's perhaps how I'd see the link, maybe. Um, otherwise, yeah, it's it's hard to hard to see. I mean, even the things that we thought they would have taken away in terms of um, uh, skills, we haven't seen on display yet. Now, these are early days, and it's hard to draw conclusions about a conflict a week in. You, you would know better than I, or you remember better than I. But how long did it take the U.S. to take Baghdad in two thousand three? Three weeks? We're not we're not even. I mean, today is a week, so um, uh, we, we'll see. Um, but yeah, it has not, uh, you know, this is, I hesitate to make judgments about like the Russian military's capabilities in general as a result of this kind of real poor showing so far, or relatively poor showing so far, at least the initial bizarre actions from like sending in single units of the National Guard like into Kiev without any, uh, you know, without anyone else around them to these airborne like troop suicide missions. Um, you know, the, but like they're not actually fighting the war. They weren't at least the war that they trained for um, and, uh, and the war that they, you know, we see them uh, preparing for when they do their, their exercises. Uh, the U.S. and our NATO allies are talking about sending even more arms to Ukraine, how would you envision if this goes on beyond three weeks? So I think a big question mark is whether there's a government in three weeks or not, or the, or, or, uh, the legitimate elected government is still in power in Kiev. Um, and I don't know. I think a lot of obviously the very other variables stem from that, um, because it's one thing to be supporting a you know, uniform military controlled by a a government, um, even though they're they've lost control of the airspace more or less, and and control of some key uh, areas on the ground. It's another thing to be supporting either a government in exile or a you know 
kind of insurgent movement or uh, so there, there's so many variables that have yet to play out that it's hard to see what the modalities of assistance will be. I think what is clear is that um, uh, particularly the Europeans, uh, the the sort of visceral reaction to Russian brutality has surprised, I think, even themselves. Um, you know, you see countries like Finland. I mean, Germany was the big uh, initial U-turn, um, uh, but, you know, countries like Finland and Norway, which don't tend to do this kind of thing, pledging assistance, even Italy. Um, so, I, you know, my, my, my short-term concern is that somebody needs to be coordinating all of that. Um, but uh, longer term, the modalities of who we're, whom we're assisting and how are going to be very tricky if, you know, the Russian military is in control, at least of Ukraine uh, up to the river and or plus parts of, think, you know, the south that's on the other side of the river. Um, uh, I just don't know how that works. I mean, and I don't know what the Russians plan is for the west of the country, which would be the land routes in like, do they really think that a uh, regime that they install would be able to control the west of the country? Um, that seems like a stretch. So we're, are we in a sort of balkanization scenario? I mean, I, it's hard to know. Um, and, you know, do they actually plan to partition the country? I mean, these are all, I think, at this point, um, you know, it's so hard to know what the post-immediate conflict uh, status quo will be um, that answering, you know, modalities about how, how external actors behave is, is, is tough. And the sanctions are already imposing a terrible cost on the Russian economy. And the country, as you mentioned, is diplomatically isolated, at least in the West. There's a lot of talk in the media about Putin's isolation, including from powerful oligarchs who have previously been part of his inner circle. In, in your view, is Putin himself in jeopardy by the sanctions and the diplomatic isolation? And how stable and resilient is his government and how wide the opposition to the war or to put it succinctly is regime change a possibility so this is by far the most risk that putin has exposed his political system to of anything he's ever done you know he and he's he his actions have undermined the core uh, of his um, popular support, which is you know relative economic prosperity and sort of rescuing Russia from the chaos of the '90s, which by the way were characterized by things like massive devaluation of the currency uh, and economic instability, the kind of things that have already happened a week into the war. Um, Russia, the level of repression in Russia is almost hard to keep track of. It's going so quickly up, you know, the kind of media that I read and listen to and watch. I've just, you know, Echo of Moscow was just shut down today. The Dosh TV station, the last remaining sort of independent one was shut down. Like there are uh, lots of rumors that tomorrow martial law is going to be declared. Um, so, you know, I think uh, events have been set in motion domestically, both by the sanctions and by the Russian response to the war, which was obviously going to be repressive, but the extent of it is really breathtaking. Um, and also the extent to which 
you know, the free market has been limited in the last week um, in response to the sanctions. The it's, you know, there are forces have been set in play that we haven't seen in Russian politics ever. And it's hard to know how that will end. Uh, you know, long term stability, obviously, there are major question marks now. Um, in the short term, there's likely to be more of a, I mean, I think that the Russian government's control of the information space, which is only accelerated, right, with the throttling of various social media sites and the shutting down of others, um, will allow them, I think, to get through this initial most acute period um, without facing, you know, the kind of instability that would threaten their rule. Um, I, I think, you know, we sh Putin has so thoroughly cleared the um, the political spectrum of any hint of organized opposition. And, you know, the population was pretty demoralized. I mean, the sort of potential basis for protest was pretty demoralized before this began, um, you know, through the arrest of Navalny and the, and the repression of any, any public uh, opposition, uh, public organized opposition. Um, so there's yeah, and we don't see any evidence yet of elite splits. It would be sort of hard to imagine within that system um, an organized, you know, sort of within system palace coup type scenario. So regime change, uh, you know, the other problem with it is that many in the system, including I think Putin himself, equate regime change with, you know, like regime security equals national security. Uh, public protests, they see always the hand of external actors inciting, you know, the, the, the masses. Um, so the kind of lashing out that we could expect in that context is, uh, is, 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 you know, scary. Um, so, you know, these kinds of personalistic authoritarian regimes, they, they, they you know, obviously they don't last forever, but and when they do change, they change quite rapidly and unexpectedly. Um, and I think basically the way to think about this is that the, these actions and the Western response and the Russian reaction to that have created like the kind of systemic risks that Putin spent 25 years trying to uh, eliminate. Um, now, granted, he himself has, uh, by really doubling down on the on the personalistic uh, nature of the of the regime by passing these constitutional amendments in uh, 2020, um, and um, you know weakening all the other political institutions in Russia, he he sort of set the stage for this. But this is really the apogee. I mean, it's hard to see, you know. So like. Long story short, um, uh, medium to long term, there are the the government's going to have to be dealing with a lot of problems if it wants to um, avoid like really negative outcomes. Uh, in the short term, I just think that in wartime, the the and with the competent repressive apparatus, I, I wouldn't bet on regime change. The other thing I would say about regime change is like careful what you wish for. Um, the uh, why why should anyone be confident that the person who comes to power after Putin is going to be a uh, dove and not a hardliner or even a more hardliner than Putin? Um, so you know I think um, uh, there 
you know, I, I, the, I, I often get the sense these days that people in this town in Washington can sort of smell blood in the water and are eager, eager to, um, you know, deliver the death blow. But I just don't care for what you wish for is what I would say. <laughs> as horrible as this regime is and as, you know, terrible the war that they're waging is, um, I don't know that uh, going down that road is going to end well for anyone. Sam, there are increasingly louder calls for a U.S. or NATO-backed no-fly zone, which would put us on a possible collision course with Russia, the country with, among other things, the world's largest nuclear arsenal. You wrote this week in the Financial Times that these events can spiral, and there is a need for the U.S. and Russian militaries to maintain a channel to prevent mishaps that could lead to unwanted and unforeseen escalation. Do you support a no-fly zone? And more broadly, how serious uh, do you think Putin is when he talks about uh, putting his nuclear weapons on alert? Um, a no-fly zone would require the NATO or the United States to shoot down Russian aerospace forces operating in Ukrainian airspace. Um, it's not a trivial matter. It would be direct U.S. intervention in the war. Let's just be honest about it. I don't think that's on the table. I think there's sort of, well, let me put it this way. Um, it's one of those things that, uh, that um, I consider to be very low probability at the moment. That said, the central bank sanctions um, uh, were are probably like 11 out of 10 on, on what I was expecting on sanctions. Um, I think what anyone was expecting on sanctions and particularly so soon. So uh, I wouldn't rule it out completely because of how, um, you know, the response has been so intense um, uh, and, you know, completely morally justified. Um, but uh, I, you know, no flies on people should be honest that that's really war with Russia. And I think the Biden administration wants to avoid that. Um, as was reported in Politico, I, I am pushing on an open door, at least when it comes to the U.S. and uh, a desire to maintain um, not only just mill-mill communications, but also to establish some sort of deconfliction mechanism along the lines of what, in fact, was uh, what they did in Syria. Um, Politico has reported that the U.S. has essentially proposed this and really has the, the Russians aren't answering the phone, um, which is disconcerting. Um, but so I think uh, um, given that there are going to be Russian aircraft operating in much closer proximity and conducting combat operations in much closer proximity to NATO airspace than there were a week ago, the deconfliction thing makes sense. It's um, uh, and it's a good thing that the Biden administration is pursuing it. Um, the question of nuclear escalation uh, is something that I think we all should, you know, be concerned about, uh, but not in the, you know, the way the way we get there, I think, is Russia uh, is a is a Russia NATO conflict. Right. Um, and uh, I don't think Russia is going to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine. Um, uh, I think it has enough conventional um, weapons to to uh, to accomplish its immediate military tasks. But if it sees, you know, NATO prepared to intervene, um, you know, that's when I get worried. And, you know, 
they don't have a huge number of conventional uh, uh, long-range strike um, uh, missiles in 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 the magazine, and once those run out, and if there's a conflict with NATO, you know they're going to go for what's the what's there, which is you know the the non-strategic nuclear weapons. How do you assess Russia's cyber capabilities relative to the United States and the West? And do you think that Putin would consider a cyber response at this point? Um, frankly, I'm surprised that we haven't seen one already. I am no cyber expert, um, but uh, I do know that um, how Russia perceives what uh, the sanctions uh how Russia perceives Western sanctions, which is economic warfare on their homeland. And I never, I did not expect them to be, to take that sitting down. And I would, would, I'm still, I still would expect some sort of kinetic, non-kinetic response on our homeland as a retaliation. Uh, and uh, it may well be just a matter of time. Um, they maybe they don't want to be fighting both conflicts that they're fighting, engaged in both uh, levels of conflict at the same time. Um, but, you know, those, that's the means that Russia has to uh, have a non-kinetic effect on our, on, on Western homelands, so to speak. Um, it's a, you know, it's their asymmetric uh, advantage relative to their economic weight. I mean, they can't impose sanctions on us, although, well, to a limited extent, they can. Um, uh, in fact, I haven't seen it yet. But, you know, for example, Boeing depends on titanium from Russia. I mean, even with once they close the airspace to U.S. airlines, it's going to be a whole lot harder for folks to fly to Asia or just longer um, because uh, many flights from the U.S. go over the pole and over Siberia. Um, so uh, but th those are relatively trivial by comparison to what we've done to the Russian economy. Uh, so. I am concerned about a Russian cyber response. Um, and frankly, that has been one of the um, thing, you know, shoes that has not dropped yet, um, even in Ukraine, frankly. Uh, there have been obviously some cyber attacks, but either the Russians aren't trying as much as we thought they would have, or they haven't tried yet, or the Ukrainians are better defenders than we expected. Um, or it's just harder to achieve effects in the cyber domain during a conventional conflict than we expected. I mean, this is one of the first uh, um, cases where you know a major cyber power is fighting in a context where cyber could have been used to supplement conventional military operations. Um, you know. Why is the internet still working in Ukraine is an interesting question. Um, or like uh, government communications. Um, so, uh, but again, I think it's early days yet. And um, uh, Russia is very capable in this domain. Um, I think, you know, the thing about cyber is that there are a lot of unknowns about what, what can be, what kind of damage can be um, uh, what kind of what 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 can be done with cyber, and we might be about to test those um, or to find answers to those questions. There's also talk about imposing an embargo or sanction on 
Russian oil exports. Russia has the largest national natural gas reserves in the world, and the eighth largest oil reserves. Do you see that happening? And is cutting off Russian energy exports or financing for them a good move in your mind? And would Putin, in such a case, even consider cutting off his gas exports to the West in response? Europe counts on Russian gas for about 40% of its energy needs. I see this as um, really unlikely. Uh, well, let me put it this way. That, that is the, I think the, the, that might be the sort of, I hesitate to use, use the word nuclear because we might actually have nuclear, um, you know, the escalation problems, but uh, the, that is the sort of highest level of sanction um, and the, and the one that risks the most blowback for Americans and Europeans, right? I mean, oil is already over a hundred dollars a barrel. Um, if we really uh, place an embargo on Russian oil exports, you said it's the has the eighth largest supplies. I believe it's the largest exporter, though, uh, either Russia or Saudi, and they're one and two. And sometimes they switch off. I forget who's exporting the most right now. Um, but you know, taking that supply out, I don't think it's something that OPEC. First of all, you know, it's unclear that OPEC would compensate for it, and. Um, Second of all, uh, the the pricing implications. I mean, I don't think we could overcome that with with our strategic reserves. So um, I would imagine that that uh, given the emphasis being placed on avoiding as much as possible the um, imposing pain on on um, the American and European publics, uh, that that would be something that was resorted to in the short term. But uh, a lot of things have surprised me so far in terms of the Western response. So um, uh, I certainly wouldn't rule it out completely. Let's shift to the Middle East for a minute. Do you see any connection between what is happening in Ukraine and the negotiations on the Iran nuclear deal, which are reportedly in their final days? And play out for us the scenarios for Russia, if there is a deal and if there isn't with regard to Russia's dealing with Iran and the region? The extent of Russian uh, retaliation for the sanctions is, you know, going to be an unfolding question. And there will be areas where they see themselves mostly as doing favors to us, or that it's something that we want in the international context is more important to us than it is to them, or just doesn't have that much inherent value to them. There, I could see Russia going out of their way to try to undermine, you know, U.S. policy. Um, the JCPOA, I think, is different because Russia wants the JCPOA back in, in effect. Um, uh, and, you know, I think um, given that it's, it's it, the... You know, so that, that's my bottom line about the way it would affect Russian policy on the JCPOA. In other cases in the Middle East, though, um, I think this new, I mean, level of conflict between Russia and the West and Russia and NATO is going to play out in different ways. So, like, uh, I would be careful if I were in Idlib right now, um, you know, given that the Turks are, are making noises about sort of not allowing more forces, naval forces to rotate in and out of the Black Sea. 
um, although it's you know that what they're actually planning to do is pretty unclear. But that's another story. Um, the um, the uh, you know in other places where Russia can make trouble um, for those countries that it sees engaged in you know an attack on the Russian homeland, fair or not, that's another story. I mean, I think just that's just how they see it. So the gloves would come off in certain contexts in ways that they weren't before. And I think that might explain some of the, like, for example, Israeli attempts at, at um, balancing here, because they don't want to see Russia retaliate against Israel and Israeli interests in the Middle East. Um, you know, it's been interesting to see, for example, the UAE um, being, uh, um, you know, abstaining on that key uh, UN Security Council vote. Um, I think, you know, Russia's uh, reestablishment of regional clout in the Middle East has, you know, changed the way key Middle Eastern countries have responded to the crisis. And I think potentially, you know, this, this is the sort of way that they've, if, you know, they've cashed in on the political capital in the region that they've created um, by, uh, you know, to a certain extent, probably the most one could have hoped for um, avoiding full-blown bandwagoning with the U.S. I mean, we'll see over time how that plays out, but, um, you know, uh, that's that's been my observation so far. While the West seems mostly committed to Putin's isolation, we've talked about that. You said it's uh, an 11 on a 1 to 10 scale so far in the response with regard to sanctions. Help us understand how Russia is managing its relations with the East, especially China and India. And India, also on the Security Council, abstained on that vote last week. Yeah, I mean, India, of course, is a major customer of Russia's military industrial complex and is in a really tight spot here. Um, and, you know, that's not that kind of a relationship is not something you can just switch to other providers um, in any kind of plausible short. I mean, they, they do co-development. It's the only country Russia does co-development with. I mean, it's a really extensive military industrial relationship there. Um, you know, I think. um it's going to, Russia is going to increasingly come to rely on China. Um, and so the, that, that relationship has just become so much more central to Russia. Um, now, that doesn't mean that like Russia will do China's bidding, but China has a whole lot more leverage um, uh, and Russia has far fewer options. Um, that said, I don't think China wants Russia to fail. Um, I don't think it, you know, is particularly um thrilled about this because you know from what i understand like she's not ready to act on on uh when it comes to taiwan yet or the pla isn't um and uh so it's not like that they're seeing this as a bonanza for them to take advantage of in the short term and they probably were you know are, are concerned about some of the global economic implications but uh they they're not going to allow Russia to fail, or they're going to try to help to avoid Russia failing, even if they're going to try to also tr balance the, their economic stakes with, with the United States, um, with that, you know, um, uh, with these other priorities. What does Putin expect from Xi in China? So, um, 
one thing about the Russia-China relationship um, that uh, was true before this and probably will remain true after it is that they do not expect each other to agree on everything because they see each other as fellow great powers, you know, which have certain, um, you know, interests that diverge, but, you know, they manage those disagreements and focus on the positive and don't allow the disagreements to derail the sort of fundamental achievements in their relationship as they see it. Uh, and part of the managing disagreements and sort of the management of that relationship, which they had conducted right well, very well, is not owning each other's problems. Um, and so, you know, Russia doesn't support the um, the U.S. position on the South China Sea or whatever, but like it also has this very close relationship with Vietnam uh, and uh, supplies Vietnam with a whole lot of um, uh, weaponry and, you know, explores, uh, had projects exploring natural gas fields in areas of the South China Sea that Vietnam and China contested, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, just as China had a very significant military industrial relationship with Ukraine, um, and uh, uh, I think there was an interesting parallel there. Um, so I don't think Putin expects Xi to um, uh, necessarily help because you know the idea is that you don't own the other's problems, but you that he certainly expects him not to to, to help him play defense. Uh, I would imagine, and um, diplomatically, economically, uh, and um, to not to you know impede, um, not to you know sort of uh, um, cause Russia any problems, so to speak, as it's uh, as it's carrying this out. Sam, last question. The title of your 2017 book on Russia-Ukraine tensions was called Everyone Loses. And it's hard to imagine today that either Russia or Ukraine will be better off than they were on February 22nd before Russia's invasion. How does this end? And what would you envision is the best, most likely, and worst case scenarios given where we are today? The best case scenario in the short term is also, I think, highly unlikely at this stage, is some sort of settlement that avoids, um, that allows the Ukrainian government to survive and uh, uh, ends the active phase of the fighting and um, uh, returns Russian forces to this sort of status quo ante of where they were. That is like a, uh, unfortunately, it seems it's not impossible to imagine, but it seems uh, highly unlikely at this stage. The problem with imagining end games, if, if Russia does succeed in ousting the Ukrainian government, is that I don't know how, what the off ramp is then for anyone, for us too. Um, like we will be locked into, we will be forced to escalate um by what russia did because of how outrageous um uh <laughs> th that action will be um and uh would be if it occurs uh and you know i think uh i don't know what the the stable equilibrium within ukraine looks like after that i can't imagine stable governance under um 
Russian occupation. Um, I don't know what the stable equilibrium looks like inside of Russia with all this economic pressure on it. And I don't know what the stable equilibrium looks like in the international system with Russia with like being essentially North Koreaized. You know, there's a fundamental difference between both Iran and North Korea and the and Russia. And that is that Russia plays a significant role in the international system. Um, and if if one of the sort of core um players and the key players in the international system is like a, treated as a pariah state by most of the other players in the international system. I just don't know how that system continues to function in the way it did. Um, so it's, it's just, that's the scariest part of the phase of the conflict that we're in right now is that it's hard to see off ramps and it's hard to see new equilibria emerging. Now things might be more clear. We're in the fog of war, um, and uh, the heat of the of the conflict. So, um, it, you know, making judgments about the future is uh, doubly hard. But um, uh, right now, it's hard for me to see what the new what a, what a new kind of stability looks like. Sam, thank you. This has been great. I always learn from you about Russia and Ukraine and and Europe. Um, We've been colleagues at the IISS and at RAND. Thank you for joining us today on, on the Middle East. Thanks for having me, Andrew. It's been a pleasure. And um, I wish I had you know, happier news to report. We will return after this short break. Elizabeth Hagedorn, and I'm the State Department correspondent at El Monitor. And I'm Joe Snell. I'm El Monitor's video editor. Let's admit it, this past year has been difficult to stay on top of the news and sift through what's accurate and what's misleading. Let El Monitor help you. If you care about the Middle East and North Africa, you should consider listening to El Monitor's audio series on the Middle East with Andrew Parasoliti and Amber and Zaman, and on Israel with Ben Caspi. You can now watch our newest video podcast, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel. You can subscribe to these series on your favorite podcast platforms. And through a host of free daily and weekly newsletters, we offer a range of perspectives with the highest journalistic standards. You can subscribe to these newsletters at almonitor.com. As an award-winning media service headquartered in Washington, D.C., Almonitor has a network of over 160 contributors around the world. So if you haven't done so already, be sure to visit almonitor.com, where you can find all of these newsletters and podcasts, along with first-class reporting and analysis. Thanks to our guests, Dr. Sam Cherup, and our production team of Beowulf Rockland and Rosabelle Hine of Two Square Media Productions. We will be back next week, and if you haven't done so, please sign up for all three of our podcasts at your favorite podcast platform. Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel, whose guest this month is Nobel Peace Prize winner Maria Reza, CEO of the digital media website Rappler. And on Israel with Ben Caspit, where Ben this week speaks with Israeli diplomat Yaki Dayan about whether Israel has a role to play in mediating the Ukraine-Russia conflict. And of course, this podcast on the Middle East, where I will be here again next week with another decision maker or thought leader from the region. Thank you all for listening, and please keep up with all of the news and trends in the Middle East at lmonitor.com. Thank you.